Welcome to EU The Jury. I'm Robin Lustig, and with me are 10 men and women who hope to be able to make up their minds about how to vote in the EU referendum on June the 23rd. They're going to hear from two experts, question them closely, and then discuss among themselves what they've learnt. And you will be able to eavesdrop on their deliberations. They introduced themselves at the start of our discussion about the economy. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, perhaps it'd be a good idea to do so now before you listen to this one. I should point out that our jurors are not meant to be a scientifically representative sample of the UK electorate, although we have chosen them more or less at random. But this discussion is going to be about our sovereignty and our national identity. Will we be more British, more independent if we vote to leave the EU. Our first speaker is Justin Protz, who is a researcher at the think tank Civitas. Justin Protz. So for me, I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to talk about sovereignty and why it's so important and why it's relevant to the referendum debate. And then I'm going to talk about the EU and the UK in the international environment. So firstly, this is actually the first referendum we're going to have on the European Union. Previously, when we joined it, it was the European Economic Community, which, as the name suggests, focused mainly on economics. It has since then become a much more political union. It has grown and become more powerful. So sovereignty is increasingly something that we're worried about. Decisions are made by the European Commission which is the only body in the EU that isn't represented, isn't, doesn't have representatives that are elected. In the councils, you have elected representatives from each of the governments in the EU, and in the parliament, we elect our own MPs. But neither of these bodies get to actually make or decide the laws that are going through the European Union. The European Commission is the only institution with the ability to initiate legislation within the EU. That means that people who are unelected are choosing the direction of the EU. And because of a ratchet effect, which means we don't go backwards, we always go forwards, the Parliament and the Council only approve or reject, but never get to legislate con in contradiction to the Council. It means we're moving in one direction and one direction only. And that is not returning power to the people of Europe. It is taking it further away from the citizens of each of the countries, where we're having less and less influence on the politics around us. So the referendum is in fact probably the last chance for the UK as a nation to exert its sovereignty over Europe, over the EU, I suppose, not Europe. And whether we vote to stay in as a vote of support for the European Union or we vote to leave, it will be an opportunity to prove that the electorate is involved in the EU. But this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So this is the last time that's going to happen, potentially, for any of us today. And so we have a government that is making laws, that is passing regulation, that is changing our political environment, and this is the only chance we're going to have to vote on it in the future. If we leave the EU, that won't be the case. If we leave the EU, the UK government, every five years, we will get to remove them. Every five years, we will be able to hold them to account. We will know who the politicians are. In the European Union, we don't know who they are. We don't know who 
is in the European Commission. Who in this room would be able to list even half, say, of the European Commissioners? I, for one, would not. They are our elected representatives. They are the ones sitting around the table making the laws. And that is why it's important that we hold them to account and we say we're not willing for you to keep governing us when we don't know who you are. We don't elect you. We don't support necessarily what you do. So that's political sovereignty for me. It's about the relationship between the individuals and the European government. Our national government rep should represent us and an unelected European government shouldn't. As for the international stage, a lot of people are worried we're going to become an inward-looking protectionist country. I think that's doing the UK a serious discredit. We've always been an outward-looking country, and at the moment, the EU is one of the most protectionist group of countries in the world. We were held to ransom last week, potentially by France, who's no longer willing to make a trade deal with countries in South America. And that's France holding back 27 other countries from trading freely. The UK outside the EU will be a member of the UN, the OECD, the WTO, the G7, the G20. We're not an irrelevant small country that's gonna stop communicating with the rest of the world. We have a seat on the UN Security Council. If we're going to want to build trade after we leave, we're going to have to act actively take part in all of these communities. Our Financial services are quite often discussed as the pinnacle of financial services around the world. We will be listened to on our regulation and that we will take part as we have done previously in OECD meetings to help discuss these things and help regulate on an international level. We're part of the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights. That's a European organization that represents 47, not 20, eight countries. And in that, we are not having our sovereignty eroded. It is an intergovernmental organization where we talk and we discuss. So my theory is coming to, coming to a conclusion. We're represented in an organization by people who are not elected. Their laws, the laws we pass are passed by people who we do not know. And if we're worried about leaving that and then becoming an internalized protectionist country, we should have nothing to worry about. The UK hasn't been that historically and it probably won't ever be that again. Justin, thanks very much for that. Um, can I just take you up on one thing you said? You said the commission made up of unelected people are the people who make the laws. But it is in fact the council, isn't it, on which each EU government is represented that has the final say? The council, along with the parliament, have the final say, but they don't have, it's a one-way street. Only the commission can introduce the laws, which means only laws that the commission approve of can ever be passed. And so the commission is not going to pass laws that diminish their power. They're not gonna pass laws that make it the case that the European Union is less relevant in certain areas. They're only going to pass laws that improve the power and the structure of the EU. They're only going to pass laws that benefit what they see as the European movement. So they're not going to act in national interests. 
The other question I just wanted to ask before I go to our jury, the nature of sovereignty, it is now often said, has changed in the modern world and that no nation can survive if it insists on total sovereignty. In other words, it insists on making decisions with no look at all at how it affects its neighbors, how it affects its trading partners, how it affects other nations. You can no longer be, so it is said, a truly, totally, 100% independent sovereign nation. I think that depends on your view of sovereignty. Um, I think sovereignty is widely sort of, there are different definitions of sovereignty and there's sovereignty in the strictest sense of who has the final say. And in reality, we're no longer truly sovereign because nobody can be truly sovereign. You have to work with your neighbours. You have to discuss things with NATO for security reasons. You have to discuss things with the World Trade Organization in order to have a free, and, a free trading environment that's successful and works internationally. But the difference is, is about power, influence and legitimacy. Can we really claim to be a politically legitimate country when our government can be overruled by a majority group of countries elsewhere in Europe. That is not a sovereign government in the UK if a block of countries elsewhere can determine our policy. Okay, let's go to the jury. Questions, uh, Max. Who appoints EU commissioners? The EU commissioners are appointed, there's one from each country. They are appointed by the President of the European Commission, who is in effect the only source of elected member of the Commission. The Commission President is nominated by the Council, the Heads of State, and then approved by the European Parliament. Then he chooses from each country a Commissioner and assigns them their brief. And those people are not ever held accountable to an electorate other than the European Parliament, because the European Parliament has to approve each commissioner, doesn't it? The European Parliament doesn't approve each commissioner, it approves the commission as a whole, um, and has only ever once threatened to remove the commission as a whole, and instead they resigned. Okay, lots of people want to speak, I'm gonna go round. Simon? <coughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like a fairly crazy um, structure, but um, we retain our right to veto any decision, I presume. No. Um, the voting is actually done under a qualified voting majority. Um, so actually, it's only a majority of countries that have to agree things. The only exception is, um, the only real exception is uh, national security, um, where we still have an active veto. Um, and the accession of new members. And the accession of new, and so well, I was going to say the next thing was, the other thing is treaty change or the accession of new members, which involves amending the treaties to incorporate new countries. So the EU can't expand or necessarily change from its current situation significantly. But one of the things that the Lisbon Treaty did is it gave the European Court the power to rule things as coming under European jurisdiction. And the European Court basically can interpret European law, how it wants to sort of stretch and cover more and more legislation. I mean, do you believe the EU is a force for good or is it some kind of evil 
multinational that's <laughs> hell-bent on overthrowing the world. Um, I, mean. I, I, I genuinely think at, at the core of it, it, it believes it's, what it's doing is good and it itself wants a united, it wants to unite everybody in a positive and democratic way. But the problem is, is it's doing it in such a way that's causing harm and actually it's causing more tension. You have the rise of right-wing and left-wing populist parties. And the reason is that we now see Europe as a main government in quite a lot of places, and our national governments are just opposition to the European government. So we're electing parties to oppose Europe in many areas in Europe. So the Greek party, Spain's parties, Italian's party, we're electing people we think will stand up to Europe rather than people we want to represent us in all areas of policy. John. Um, I understand that each commissioner is appointed, essentially the name is put forward by the government of the day from the country. So although they're not directly elected, they represent the government of the day. And to say we don't know them, that is just pure laziness. They're all on the internet. You can see them and find them. They're there. But it's, it's not laziness on each individual's part. It's laziness on the whole of UK society's part. We're just not Truth is, UK society isn't that interested in European politics. We, if I, we are now because we've got a referendum coming up, sure. But there are, I go to other places in Europe and they'll talk about what the Commission's doing and things like that. But actually, the media doesn't report, didn't report heavily at all on the election of, of Jean-Claude Juncker to the president of the Commission. Our media is not hugely interested in the politics of Europe. They're much more interested in national elections. Amy. Is it really true this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make this decision? Because, no, let me finish this, it's, it's a bit alarmist. And if you look at the Scottish referendum, there were many iterations of, of eventually the, the same question. Um, and I just think that you're unlikely to get the result you want if you, if you pressure people to make a decision now. If we say, yes, we want to remain, are you saying we can't revisit that later? Um, no, uh, what I was saying was that we've been told it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So maybe we, if we think about it as a once in a lifetime opportunity, it is more alarmist and it makes us more aware of how extreme the situation could be. I think it's a sensible way to look at it because I think it's, the EU is not set up to have countries constantly decide whether or not they want to be members. The EU is set up as a permanent system where you're locked in. It's not, it's not designed to be easy to leave and it's not designed to be easy to join. They want it to be this solid, unified block. So they don't want us having referendums going in and out. They would like us to make up our mind one way or another. Max? You mentioned the lack of democracy within the EU. Yeah. I don't think it's um, unrelated to say that in this country, you in general elections, parties can get pretty big majorities with fairly small vote shares. There's an unelected House of Lords. In NATO, for example, you've got countries like Bulgaria and countries that maybe, when you think of them in an EU context, maybe aren't as popular as other countries. And we are treaty-bound to defend these countries. There's a lot of instances in British life where democracy is not absolute. Do you not think there are any positives to the EU that are sort of worth paying the price of having a little bit less democracy for? Because we put up with it in lots of other places. We can put up with not having democracy being perfect because we know in the end we can easily, every five years, remove whoever's in charge. 
we don't know when we'll get to remove whoever's in charge of the EU because we don't have that control. We have elections for the European Parliament, but actually you have effectively a fixed system of European, European politicians who are all driven by this idea of a single unified, politically, socially, economically unified Europe. And that's not going to change. I'd be interested in getting your take, you referred to it briefly earlier on, on the whole argument about Britain's place in the world and its influence in the wider world if it weren't a member of the EU. Um, the government's leaflet, which it has sent to every household in the country, uh, says the UK is a strong independent nation. Our EU membership magnifies the UK's ability to get its way on the issues we care about. You don't think that's true? Um, no, I think, I think it's true that the EU has more clout with us in it. But the UK doesn't have any more clout for being in it. The UK just contributes to this system of Europe. And because we are one of the biggest economies in the EU, we're one of the biggest economies in the world, we contribute a lot to the EU. And so it would one, one of the downsides of leaving would be that the rest of Europe would suffer to a degree unfortunately. But and become less stable, even less stable? I think actually it would probably have an opposite effect because they, they would lose one, one of their biggest opponents of further integration. So it would actually allow EU to sort of unify over integration and move further on in that direction. Another question? Can I, I, I'd be interested in your, your, your feel for the, this question of Britain's place in the world and its influence in the world, whether it matters to you, whether you think Britain should have a major role to play in international affairs, whether being in the EU helps it in that respect, hinders it. Matt, thoughts? I kind of agree with the speaker. You know, I think Britain being in the EU bolsters the EU, not the other way around. Um, you know, we, we had an empire, we all the rest of it, but all of that's gone. Um, so, I mean, we are in the world where we are. We're a, you know, we're a fairly sort of powerful country still, but other countries will overtake us, um, no doubt. Um, we've still got a lot of soft power in the world. We've got the English language and, and so on. I'm in favour of democracy. I'd like local democracy. Um, um, I'd like on a, on a very local level, if possible, uh, much more local than we have now. Um, and I think the internet affords that kind of thing. I think we should explore that. I don't like, therefore, being governed by um, a super state hundreds of miles away. John, you've got a very world view. You've lived in different places. You've travelled a lot. What, 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 what should Britain's place in the world be, in or out of the EU? We have a position in the world which, which is a historical legacy from, from our history, some of it reprehensible in fact, but nonetheless we have it. We're the fifth biggest economy in the world, so we have um, that position. We are seen as a reasonable, sensible nation, so we have a, we've earned a, a respectable place in the world because of what we had, what we do, and who we are. And we can only maintain that by continuing on the same path. And I believe that being part of the EU supports the view that we are a sensible, committed nation. Yes, Denise. What I'm kind of beginning to think is 
this kind of nationality identity thing is much more down to our responsibility and the negative effect and choices that the media chooses in terms of how we see ourselves and how we're portrayed. It just struck me that if we're in the EU, isn't it in our control to start having these conversations and making it a bit a bigger part of our agenda if that's we want what we want in terms of of identity i i have no problem with the immigration issue here i think we are a very tolerant country but i get frustrated with the media i get frustrated with their choice of how they portray this country how they portray the eu and how they are essentially taking away our power from us and the fact that the government and the people of this country for some reason have chosen not to have the energy that, that we should be having. This is not about being in the EU, this is about us and how we're managing things. Justin, your thoughts on that? Um, just, just quickly on the having the energy point, I think a lot of it is because we don't have as much, because our government doesn't have as much control as it would like, that it can't always have the energy because it might it finds that actually so that's something the EU deals with. They don't deal with that. Or the EU will overrule them on that, so they don't want to push for that. And that's one of the things you're saying, what is the problem with being in this big organisation, is that our national governments struggle to get passionate about anything. Because if they do, they get slapped down by the European Commission and say, we'll get there eventually. The political reality of it is it's just not worth the hassle trying to disagree with Europe. Justin Protz, thank you very much indeed. Our second speaker is Simon Hicks, who is the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science at the London School of Economics and author of a book called What's Wrong with the European Union and How to Fix It. Professor Hicks. Thank you very much. Um, I should also say that um, I'm a senior fellow for a program of the Economic and Social Research Council. That's the British Social Science Funding Council. And they have um, they've done with the EU referendum what they did with the Scottish referendum is they've employed 15, 20 academics, and we're meant to be neutral in the debate. Um, and we're meant to engage, and I've been doing a lot of public events and town hall meetings and speaking in sixth forms, and I'll be doing more in the coming weeks. I think one of the problems in Britain is that we have a very different conception of the EU that a lot of the continent does. For most people on the continent, they think of the EU as a political system in which they live. And so they, they conceptualize it to say, look, it's a political system. There's representative institutions here. And it's designed very much like the United States system is in that there's checks and balances. So the commission has proposal power. And we in Britain often assume the commission is a very powerful body. It's not. It's a very weak body. Because anything the commission proposes has to pass through the council where the government sit and the European Parliament that's elected. And so there's checks and balances. And then there's adjudication by the European Court of Justice. So lots of checks and balances. It means it's very difficult to get anything done. It's slow. It's painful. But if anything gets done, it requires a very large majority, broad consensus. The problem, of course, with all those checks and balances is once you've passed something, it's very hard to change it. So we think of like the US, you know, it's very hard to change healthcare or gun control. It's the same in the EU. It's hard to change the cap once it's passed because of all these checks and balances. 
But it does mean that when policies are adopted, they on average tend to be quite centrist. And what we know from public opinion research in Europe is the further you are from the political center, the less you like the EU. So, you know, the, on the radical right, they don't like the EU and they see it as some kind of socialist plot against uh, And if you're on the left in France, they see it as some kind of Anglo-Saxon neoliberal plot against the French workers. You know, so it's, a, it, it's, if either of those, the radical left or the radical right liked the EU, then we should be worried, my kind of view of this. Um, uh, it doesn't really feel that democratic. I mean, we elect the MEPs who sit in the European Parliament, and we elect our governments who sit in the council, and the commission is chosen by the governments and the European Parliament uh, as an indirectly elected body. Um, and, but we don't have a sense that there's a kind of democratic politics, that there's a kind of contest for power or contest for the direction of the policy agenda. When we think of democracy, we think we're having a choice in an election about our future. Is it going in this direction? Is it going in that direction? And once we've elected these people, we can watch them govern and we can throw them out. Well, it's a very, it, it's kind of indirect. Um, and one of the interesting things from a political scientist's point of view is a new way of choosing the commission president. So recognizing all those constraints, it was decided in the Lisbon Treaty that they would try and connect the European Parliament elections to the choice of the Commission President. And so this led the European parties to put forward candidates for the Commission President. We got in the lexicon, in the British language, a new German word, Spitzenkandidaten, which is the means lead candidate. And um, what was kind of frustrating for me was how this was absolutely ignored in the British political debate and the media. And so after, this is not the case on the continent. There were live TV debates between the candidates. There were campaign posters in Germany and France and Holland with, you know, the pictures of the, these commission president candidates. Um, after the election, the, the centre-right got the majority and Merkel was then hugely under pressure to support the candidate of the centre-right, which was Jean-Claude Juncker. Um, and there'd been no campaign or no debate or anything in the UK. So we saw this in Britain. It was seen as this was a usurping the power of the government to choose the commission president. And that was the narrative we had here. And I think that was a bit of a misreading of the media. Okay. Are we isolated in Europe? On the one hand, a lot of the way the EU works is actually a British design. We designed the single market, so we have a single market on a continental scale. This is a remarkable achievement. Free movement of goods, services, capital and labor in a market of half a billion people. A lot of other regions of the world are very jealous of that achievement. I'm very lucky to be invited to go and advise Southeast Asia and Latin America and try and tell them how they could do the same kind of thing. And one of the things, to achieve a single market on a continental scale is designing a set of institutions to govern it. And a lot of other regions of the world can't get off first base. They can't get beyond the idea that you have to have somebody who's going to propose law, and you have to have a court who's going to enforce the law, and you have to have some kind of checks and balances in decision making. Um, it's very British design in the fact that enlargement was a British project. We've had liberalization of services, a very liberal single market, 
a very deregulatory policy agenda. Um, but more recently, Britain feels increasingly isolated. We're not in the Euro, we're not in Schengen. We look like we're increasingly outvoted in the council. And there's been a lot of debate about us being increasingly outvoted in the council. The data are the following. I looked it up. Between 1999 and March 2016, Britain was outvoted 57 times. We abstained 70 times. So you can argue that 127 times we did not vote with the majority. 127 times. Do you know how many votes there were? We voted with the majority 2,474 times. So we voted with the majority 95% of the time. We abstained 2.7% and we voted no 2.2%. Right? So it's true we are outvoted. We, well, that means we have to apply laws that our government did not vote for. Some of our MEPs probably did, but our government did not vote for 127 things that came through the EU, okay? Um, you know, but that's, you win some, you lose some. If, this is, if you want full sovereignty, don't be in the EU is the point, right? If you want to be able to say no to everything, you can't be in the EU. That's the basic trade-off. Okay, let's finish there for now. I just want to ask you one question before we get to our jury. If the UK voted to leave, and if that led to the unravelling of the EU entirely, what impact would that have globally? If there were a fractured Europe, what, what would the consequences be? Yeah, I think the rest of the world has suffered so many times from Europeans fighting each other, dragging everybody else into it. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it is surprising how... There's no real leader anywhere in the world except Putin who really wants us to leave. Putin wants us to leave for two reasons. One is a very short-term uh, instrumental reason, which is he, he makes the calculation if the UK left, he could get rid of EU sanctions. Britain was the lead player pushing for Russian sanctions. And he's made the calculation, if Britain leaves, I can get rid of EU sanctions. I don't care if the Brits sanction me, who the hell are they? But if the EU sanctions me, that's a big thing. The second thing is he really wants to meddle more and more in Eastern Europe. And the, the country that could suffer the most is Latvia. Latvia's got 25% Russian speakers. They're a member of NATO. Um, and he, we could see similar things in Latvia to what he's been doing in the Ukraine. So, you know, he, he's making the calculation. If I can really disrupt this European project, I can increase my influence. So, I, you know, if the EU collapsed... I think, I honestly think a lot of countries would rebuild it, a lot of it more or less the same or try to. It is sometimes said that the UK's political culture, its political traditions, its political mythology are intrinsically different from continental Europe's. We are an island nation. We haven't been invaded for over a thousand years. We fought two world wars to save Europe from itself we're just not like them. It's true to a, some extent in that it, we, our political culture is very different to the political culture of, say, Germany or France or Belgium or Italy or Luxembourg. They have a very, where there's a very strong European identity. Um, the, they see Europe as an ideological, as a political project. But it's not true that, that to say that we're unique. 
because Sweden is very similar to us. Denmark is very similar to us. I think a lot of states in Central and Eastern Europe are very similar to us, where they threw off the yoke of the Soviet Union, and they don't want to then suddenly be, be part of some new empire, which they which called Europe. So there, I think there is a clear distinction in political cultures in Europe between a group of nations who see the EU as a, as a fundamentally a political project, and a group of nations who see the EU as in more instrumental ways. We've had to build this thing because that's the only, if we, if we want to create a market on a continental scale, which is ultimately what this is about, we have to build a set of institutions to govern it in a very kind of pragmatic way. Let's go to the jury. Questions? Matt? Where do you see the, the, uh, the EU being in 20 years time? Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of raison d'etre is to you know, bring closer and closer union. You talked about there being about some of the countries in the centre of Europe having an ideological belief in it. Um, does that, is that going to lead to the, you know, to those countries in Europe being like the states in the United States of America? Is it that kind of thing that those people have in mind? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think you've put your finger right at the heart of, of the debate here, which is that is, you know, I can see two scenarios. One scenario is there's pressure for deeper political integration, particularly in the Eurozone. They need deeper integration to manage to govern the Euro. They need to more common macroeconomic policies, for example. And are we heading then to a two-tier Europe? Are we heading to a kind of federalist core that has perhaps a new Schengen deal within it, free movement of people, and, and the Euro and, and federal economic policies, and a periphery of other states that are just in the single market? Now, if that happens, that would be a very, very difficult position for the UK to be in. Um, it's very difficult being on the second tier, particularly if the others are governing, really, the EU. But I'm, another scenario is the EU has done enough to save the euro. They've actually put in place some architecture to do it. And there's no real appetite amongst the net debtor st creditor states, so um, the Netherlands, uh, Germany in particular, Finland, um, to build deeper federal union. And if it does, then maybe that's the time we really should be making a choice about whether we want to stay in or not. Chris. Yeah, what, I thought, what um, was really interesting, what you said was that the EU is designed to be centrist. Um, so by that logic, the fact that we're having an EU referendum is a sign that the EU is working. I actually, <clears throat> I'm in favour of us having a referendum. I think it's important because I think we've, we've, you know, there's been a ratcheting of the process of European integration. A lot of countries had a referendum when we created the single market in the Single European Act. And a lot of countries had a referendum when we had the Maastricht Treaty, which committed a lot of countries to the euro. And then, you know, there's been increasing referendums in lots of countries, because these ultimately are big constitutional questions. Is the country, you know, we stop pretending the EU is some kind of free trade block. It's not a free trade block. It is a political system. And we've had generations of political leaders in this country pretending it's a free trade block, and it's not. Um, Amy? Yeah, um, another speaker was, was trying to tell us that this is the last time we'll be able to have this decision. And is that true? So if, if there's a vote to remain, 
it will come up again in the future, don't you think? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't buy that at all. Um, I think referendums are being increasingly used, not just in the UK, but in democracies around the world for major constitutional issues. Um, and I, I think it's appropriate that, you know, if we have a referendum and then things change, Europe changes, there's a, there is deeper integration in the Eurozone, and that really does jeopardize British interests. I think it would be quite legitimate to say, let's have another referendum. I don't see a problem with that. I just wonder, we've had two days of it where uh, the Brexit, uh, are, those who are arguing for Brexit often find it difficult to visualise what comes after a vote for Brexit. Uh, and those who want to stay in are obviously, they've got loads of evidence to, to evidence what they're saying. I'm just curious to know, do you think our hankering for Brexit is more sentimental and predicated on this belief that we were once great and should be great independently again, more than any other argument? Yeah, I, I do a lot of public uh, talks on this stuff. And I, th I think, I re you know, it comes down to a gut feeling of, of whether somebody feels European or not, uh, feels that... Britain is a completely different identity with an English-speaking connections around the world. My wife is American, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, our identity is with the Anglosphere. Um, and uh, we were great and influential in the world. The world speaks English, of course, because of us. Um, and so I think there's one view that says Britain is an important power globally, we'd be the fifth largest economy in the world if we left the EU. We'd, we're, in, we're politically very influential. We sit on the UN Security Council. We have lots of, we're historically a global trading power. We have all these friends around the world that we have close connections with through the Commonwealth and the English-speaking world. And it's a vision of Britain that's a sort of, once again, we can reclaim ourselves as, as this powerful world identity. Versus a, another vision which says that we're kind of post-colonial. We're now a more cosmopolitan nation. We're a more European nation in many ways in terms of what we think about, you know, public services, public spending, environment standards, and so on. Um, actually, when push comes to shove, we're actually not that different from the Germans or the Dutch or the French or the Swedes or the Danes. And really, are we that similar to the Americans? Maybe we're not. Um, so, and we're medium-sized in our aspirations. And so it's okay for us to be part of this European framework. I think we'll leave it there. Simon Hicks, thank you very much indeed. So let's see what you all made of that. Let's start with sovereignty, the idea of Britain as a independent sovereign nation. Having heard those two speakers, where do we stand? Max, can Britain be the kind of country you want it to be while it's a member of the European Union? After these debates, I don't know what leaving will really accomplish. I think the best case scenario of leaving is that we get back to basically where we are now. And I don't think it will solve our tensions with Europe. I think more than people admit, I think Margaret Thatcher and up yours, the laws, and sort of the, the 80s and losing veto power still looms large in people's minds. I think the Second World War still looms large in the public imagination more than individual people. I think we have a very confrontational um, adversarial relationship with Europe and how we think about it. Possibly because of an island nation, I'm not sure. But I find the reality of how we think about Europe quite depressing. 
Sharma, what's in your mind having heard those two speakers? What's in my mind is that I feel what we are choosing between is a way of Britain becoming great in the old-fashioned sense as we imagine it, or Britain growing up and becoming part of consensual, uh, forward-thinking future where we forget about being uh, particularly amazing on our own and just become a leader within a group. I mean, it's basically more of the same, but I think what we see in all of these arguments is this sense of loss. And I think Britain's uh, gift is also its curse, which is it is so tolerant, it allows anything and everything, as long as you don't kill anyone. Uh, but in doing that, it has forgotten what it represents and what it is. And what we all want, both those going into the EU and those wanting to pull out, is a sense of what is it we are and what is it we represent? And some people think the solution is from pulling out, and that's how we'll find it. And others think the solution is actually to become more active within the EU. Do you think that Britain can be what you want it to be in the EU? I have a born-again British identity, which is that I came here as a child from Sri Lanka. I absorbed the home service, the Clitheroe Kid, Georgie Best, the Lambeth Walk, and I became a born-again Brit. Uh, but then I have two children who are half Jewish, half Sri Lankan, you know, British, uh, who absolutely at 21 and 24 see themselves as Europeans uh, and see Europe as part of the globe rather than separate to all the other bits of the globe. And they have a very different identity. But I also wish they had a little bit of what I have, which is that sense of what being British is about. They don't have that. Madeline, can Britain be the kind of country you want it to be inside the European Union? I don't think it can be. And, and being, you know, on the older side of the voting um, uh, timeline, I just, you know, to me, Britain was Great Britain. Um, I get really upset when the French, when you have to export stuff to France, uh, the second language has to, or the first language has to be French because they don't want to speak English. And I just... I like being British, and really, I'm not bothered about anybody else. Nadia? Um, I don't know. Um, I can see us in Europe, but uh, I do think there's things that need to change. I also am concerned that I think what you said, Max, um, about it, things need to be more local, and it worries me that it's so far away and it will take even longer to get things that we in Britain need, and I think that is a big concern. It sounds wonderful on the surface, but you're just making it further away, aren't you? And we already have trouble, as it is in this country, trying to get things sorted out. So I'm still unsure because of that. And, you know, that's all I can say. Chris? Um, personally, I probably uh, resonate with Shyam was saying about her kids, you know, uh, that I've grown up in a world where being British is actually being part of Europe, you know, and I've had lots of experience across Europe, traveling Europe, all this stuff. So for me, my identity is, is British, yeah, but you don't have one identity. We live in a world where we have multiple identities, we have different experiences, and we're, we're different people in different scenarios. And I'm British, yes. I'm also from Romford in Essex. I'm also an Essex boy, an honorary Yorkshireman, and a European. So for me, 
the multiple identity thing is what makes uh, our sovereignty not an isolated identity as British. Amy? As, as somebody who looks at us at least with half of the eye of an outsider, what do you make of this debate about sovereignty, about national identity? Does it sound very curious to you or do you identify with it? It sounds a bit childish at times sometimes because let's face it, what, what if you went around the world and asked every country, can you be great or can you be greater? I think what you'll find is that at this particular moment in time, no country is feeling particularly great. What are we talking about? We're, we're fifth largest economy in the world. What is wrong? What is broken? If it's not broken, don't fix it. Matt? Um, the thing that I took from it was the, the statement that Simon Hicks made about the EU being a political state. Political system. Okay. But it's... I mean, when we joined Europe, um, it was for economic reasons. Um, it's morphed into a, a political thing as well, and it's only going one way. I don't feel that those who run the EU are very open about their intentions, but maybe they should spell it out. Maybe they should just tell us all, look, you know, the United States of America is our model. That's what we're going for. Um, and your countries are going to become less and less relevant. Denise? What are we trying to protect that's actually in danger? So I'm not saying I've got an answer, but I suppose what I'm bringing up, what, what, it is the struggle between the empire issue, and which brings along some arrogance, and also the fact, and I take the point of, of we're looking to our youth now, and... I'm much more persuaded that we need to go into the future with the young people more so. I think the worst scenario would be if we vote to say, yes, stay in, and we don't do anything else. That's my worst scenario. I think it is a, it takes time and it's like, a, it's a generational, I mean, I think an older, older generation like my parents have a different view of what, of Britain's place within Europe and what even Europe is. And uh, maybe your children, for example, they have clearly have a very different idea about who they are and what, what Europe is to them. So I think if the EU was smart, it would actually put the brakes on slightly of some of the integration which people are terrified of. Um, and I think gradually over time, uh, the aim of making everyone stronger together within Europe actually is possible. We mostly, um, I think politicians in this country and sometimes the public, magnify and sort of blow up the differences between us and Europe more than they really are. I think it's partly generational as well. I don't think, I don't think Britain's special in a sort of, I think it's got qualities that make it great, but I don't think it's exceptional. I don't think it occupies a space in politics or the world that's so different from France or Germany or Sweden. I think we're all, there is quite a similarity there of sort of cultures and outlooks and sort of values. So I think it's better to see it as a partnership rather than getting everything you want or not getting everything you want. Right, we'll end it there. Thank you all very much indeed. There are three more discussions in this series about the EU and its impact on our economy, on our laws and regulations, and on levels of immigration. You can find them all on our website at eutheJury.uk. I hope you'll find them useful. I'm Robin Lustig. Thank you for listening.